This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right. So as Carol pointed out, I was not here yesterday while she was carrying the load of the show, you know, skipping school to do some management stuff here uh, at Bloomberg. You know, we all got to pitch in in various ways, uh, but I do need to get a little bit smarter, even after listening to the podcast yesterday about what happened with the Fed. So no better team to do that than the gentleman we have in the studio now. Tindai Kapvizi is Chief Economist for Lending Tree. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Vincent Signorella, our global macro strategist, also here with us in New York City. So, Tindai, welcome back. I uh, want to chat with you first. What did you hear yesterday? No big surprises, certainly in the cut, it felt like. Uh, but what did you hear from the commentary, especially given everything that's going on in the world? Yeah, I think the Fed is having a hard time uh, trying to figure out how this trade stuff is going to play out, right? Uh, so when you look at what they were saying about the future, which I think is what everybody was kind of listening in for, they were very noncommittal, um, and I think it's up in the air whether or not they're going to have another cut. I think it all depends on how the data comes in and what happens with the trade skirmish. Yeah, it was kind of fascinating yesterday because because of the week's news, Vince, between mm-hmm. what happened in the energy markets and then the overnight markets and the repo market, I think – you know, the whole focus in terms of the Federal Reserve was like, hey, are, do they really have a grasp on controlling interest rates? Yeah, um, the tra- traders are really not comfortable the way he d- held himself yesterday. I mean, he what did com- they say? He completely ducked the question of whether this was a mid-cycle adjustment. Hmm. Yes. And I personally, watching that, I was thinking of back to school with Sam Kinison going, say it, say it. <laughs> you know? But he would not. He wow. would not say it. Because you could see the stories then today or last night, like, okay, you know, Powell says mid-season or whatever, right. or denies it or rejects the, it. The big takeaway, um, and I don't think we're seeing this play out because I think a lot of people are still getting this a little sideways, is in speaking to a couple of fixed income guys who usually are smarter than the guys I used to work with, the, the uh, FX traders. In, in looking at this, the comment he made about organically growing the balance sheet totally went by the boards. He did not explain that correctly. We didn't explain it at all. And what it really is is that as currency rises, as, as currency balances rise, the Fed needs to uh, add to reserves to balance that out, just to keep the ebb and flow even. Right. And so people took that as, well, they're going to be buying an QE light when it's really just to balance the reserves in the system, very similar to the repo operation. So mm-hmm. it's not an additional easing. And I think that's what w- the takeaway was yesterday. That's why the Dow, that's why equities rallied off the lows. And I think over time, he will explain that properly, and I think the markets are setting up for a disappointment. Well, Tendai, come on yeah. in you know, on that in terms of his explanation, because this has really um, captured everyone's attention, what's happened uh, with the overnight market, uh, markets this week. I think we're all trying to understand, you know, is this the financial crisis? Most people have said, no, that's not what's going on. But were you satisfied with what he had to say? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's the, the way that I was thinking about it, it's definitely not the financial crisis, right? Um, it sounded like they did a bad job of forecasting um, how these markets were going to behave. Um, so, you know, I, I think, I guess, at least this episode maybe suggests that they'll get better 
um, at forecasting how these markets are going to behave, and I think it also has to do with the size of the Fed's balance sheet, uh, where they're trying to calibrate what's the right size uh, of that balance sheet in order to uh, to have the market function well. So today, just to, to follow up on that, I mean, they forecast, maybe they modeled wrong a little bit, but it would seem increasingly difficult to do that, especially just looking at what happened this week with disruptions in the oil market, some geopolitical concerns, even elections in Israel, which could, you know, sort of alter the, the global economy. How how much trickier does it feel like it is for, for the Fed right now to come up with all those, uh, the correct forecast? Um, yeah, I think if you look at these various measures of uncertainty, right, um, and all those uncertainty indices are kind of spiking up, um, I think forecasting or uh, trying to figure out where the economy is going is getting more difficult for everybody. And you kind of saw that also in the way that Powell uh, was speaking in the press conference, right? If we go back to around this time last year, um, he said something and got in trouble. Then he said something in December and got <laughs> right. in trouble. He said stuff in it's January like or February and got in trouble. <laughs> you should stop uh, saying so, you know, <laughs> even a baby learns to stop touching the hot stove. <laughs> so now he's saying nothing. Yeah, I do feel like he's had his hand slapped a little bit and he's being very careful. Um, you know, Vince, I'm just thinking, there you are on the macro squawk desk uh, talking with a lot of traders and staff. We've gotten beyond the Fed. Now what? What is everybody talking about? Well, I think we go back. I mean, we saw the uh, the crazy headlines uh, just in the last hour or so regarding different trade and what, what came across with uh, Juncker in the interview with Sky News. And I think tr- we inevitably we get back to trade. You know, the mm-hmm. Fed is a... Fed is a highlight for the moment, but I think all of the central bankers have made it pretty clear that fiscal policy is the new monetary policy. There's not a lot that they can really do. They just they're, they're all pretty low. They're, they're all pretty low. Lower, and, right? and you think I think Draghi probably said it best is that we're, we we're here to make sure we don't get in the way of, of fiscal policy and growth. So Tendai, I mean, uh, but good luck with that in terms of fiscal policy, <laughs> yeah. because we haven't seen it work before. What are you expecting from the Fed, though, for, for the rest? of the year. I know our team, I think, is still looking for maybe two more, some yeah. more rate cuts. I think it for? depends on, on the data, right? So last week we had the so, so inflation like is Powell. this, they've been <laughs> hiding this inflation, I call it the fig leaf, right, that they're hiding behind. Uh, if you look at core CPI last week, we got a 10-year high in that measure. It's not the measure they prefer to use, but you know certainly other inflation measures I think would be trending upwards. Uh, we've gotten some activity from lower rates if you look at housing numbers mm-hmm. uh, yeah, today and week. earlier this week. Uh, so you know they cut rates because rate cuts work, uh, but they work to a point, right? They have diminishing returns, um, and Europe is the best example of that. So. You know, I think they might squeeze in another cut if the data doesn't strengthen. But if the data strengthens, it gets harder for them to cut. And you got to have something to cut at some point, right? Tendai Kapfizi is chief economist for Lending Tree. Vincent Signorella, global macro strategist. We got both a baby touching a stove, a fig leaf, and a Sam Kinison reference in. That was a, that's one of the best this segments is what we we've ever done. Score. Exactly. about the energy space, uh, and we've got uh, a great guest to do so. The Hennessy Gas Utility Fund, up nearly 19% this year. Fund investing, i got to check this uh, with our guests, I think at least 85% in companies that have natural gas operations. So let's get into it with Ryan Kelly back with us, Senior Vice President, Portfolio Manager at Hennessy Funds, uh, $2 billion in assets under management, based in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, by the way, a favorite place of Jason Kelly's. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Nothing not to like about it. <laughs> 
<laughs> Ryan's uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. So I got to talk. You have been involved, though, in Hennessy's large cap financial, the Hennessy gas utility funds. You've also worked in the small cap financial space. What do you like managing the most? Actually, this fund, the Hennessy Gas Utility Fund. And, Why? Well, because it's done so well for so many years, and I don't just want to be, you know, leave it at that. The performance has been very good. Uh, it's in a space that's been very dynamic for these many years as well. Sure. And so, you know, one thing I always like to remember people, or remind people is that the performance of the fund is not because of me or because of what we're picking. It's actually because of the industry. It's an yeah. industry. And it's an index, doesn't it, It's Trent? an index fund. So the index and the industry and the natural gas utility companies and all these companies around the United States that move natural gas around the country, they've been, they've been doing very well for many, 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 many years. Um, and so it's been fun to work on because um, there's a lot to talk about. People think utilities, boring, not a whole lot going on. But, <clears throat> you know, they, they do have the dividend component. They also have a interesting growth component uh, with replacing uh, these pipelines right. that's been going on for many years. Well, they also have a component that is geoeconomic and geopolitical, which that dynamism, to uh, use your term, uh, we were reminded of this week with everything that went on with Aramco. How does something like that filter through to your holdings, and what do you do in a case like that? So these... Uh, most of these holdings, almost all these holdings, are on the distribution side. So the more natural gas that goes through their system, the more money they make, essentially. Right. So, and it doesn't uh, matter really what the price is, it, potentially, right? Absolutely. Because they just got to move it around. They just got to move it around. So the, the price is passed along to the customer. Mm-hmm. You, as, a, as a, a residential customer, will have a bill, and it will have what you pay for the natural gas, and then it will have for delivery. So from our point of view and from these, these types of companies, a low and stable price – uh, over a long period of time is actually much better for them, uh, right. for natural gas. And really, stability is the key. If you have a lot of ups and downs, it means that uh, industry and businesses are going to really wonder which kind of energy source do I want to go with. Right. It uh, may hold back in terms of building out further pipeline infrastructure, correct, if we're not quite sure which way it's going to go. Exactly. And that's <clears throat> um, uh, in, in the United States, at least, for about 10 years or more, natural gas has been taking share in the overall energy sector right. quite significantly. Number one, for producing electricity, which we've talked about a lot in the past, but also just other uses in industry or you know residential customers. We add a, a, a new household every minute here in the United States wow. uh, as far as natural gas goes. And you know the use of natural gas has gone up 31% in the last 10 years, and coal has gone down 41%. So right. it's taking share. And that's how these companies are doing so well. Well, and we have seen, I think, keep me honest here, a fair amount of investment in infrastructure in this country, especially in order to sort of keep up with, A, demand, but also this notion that the U.S. is moving closer and closer to becoming energy independent full stop. I know that we've sort of crossed over that Rubicon, but we're still kind of in the middle ground, it feels like, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think if one thing we could do better is certain parts of the country need bigger pipelines right. to get natural gas into. Um, and that's, that's a difficult question. You know, there are certain parts of the country that just don't want more natural mm-hmm. gas. How much, too, of the story um, and the thinking is about LNG as well and being able to then export it out, right? Because that's yes. a big deal. Yeah, right now, about 7% of production in the United States is exported. 
through these export facilities that are usually on the Gulf Coast. There's one in Maryland. And they're shipped via tankers around the world. Um, we're now the third largest uh, as far as exports go mm-hmm. around the world uh, as, as a for country. LNG for or- LNG. Mm-hmm. Uh, liquefied natural gas. Uh, we're supposedly expected to, within five years or so, surpass uh, Australia and Qatar to be the largest wow. in the world. That's tremendous. Um, it's, but, all the you know, fra- the, it's all the fracking that's been going it's on. It's the fracking. It's the horizontal drilling. Yeah. Um, a big if there and a big what if and a big wonder, of course, has to do with the, the trade war with China. Sure. Um, and China's supposed to be the biggest importer. And we're expected to be the biggest exporter. Well, it would be nice if those two could trade together. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. That would, uh, that would be nice. That would be nice for many, many people, I feel like. Hopefully we'll get some resolution there. You're not the only one hoping for that, for sure. Ryan Kelly, Senior Vice President, Portfolio Manager of Hennessy Funds, based down in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, here with us in New York City. companies well, UPS and FedEx, and they're all about bringing everything we need right to our doorstep and uh, just delivering packages all around the world. Well, there's this Bloomberg story today by our Thomas Black, who recently caught up with the UPS CEO, David Abney. And I feel like, Jason, it's very timely considering what the news that we got from Federal Express uh, this week, FedEx, uh, with it uh, coming out with its latest quarterly update and uh, downgrading its outlook. So you do wonder, UPS versus F. Uh, FedEx, same situation or maybe something else. So let's bring in Tom Black. He's industrial logistics and aerospace reporter at Bloomberg News. He's on the phone from our bureau in Dallas, along with Jim Corridor, equity analyst at CFRA Research, on the phone from New York. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us. Tom, let's start with you. Um, tell us about your conversation with uh, David Abney. I talked to him at the end of August, and they feel they're on the right track. They had started this journey toward embracing e-commerce several years ago, and David Abney realized he had to make some pretty dramatic changes to bend the cost curve, as he says, to deliver these residential packages, which have less density than the commercial packages, and therefore a little bit less profitable to deliver. And so, Jim, come on in here, because as Carol said at the top, we do think about this as a as a market that is really dominated by these two players. Compare and contrast with us, you know, given what we have from Tom today from uh, from UPS versus what we heard earlier in the week from FedEx. Sure. Yeah. Like you said, they are two companies that are basically dominating the industry here in the U.S. Their business models are converging on each other. So FedEx has traditional roots in Air Express much more business-to-business, and UPS has much more roots in ground and home and consumer. Um, That's what's serving UPS well right now, and FedEx not so well. UPS is seeing slowing in Europe, slowing in B2B. Uh, They doubled down on their investments in Europe at exactly the wrong time, and UPS has been much more focused on e-commerce and fulfillment, and that's served them very well. And I think before FedEx, Tom, uh, came out with their uh, updated outlook this week, that was a disappointment, where FedEx and UPS seem to be pretty much trading uh, kind of in tandem. A bit. You could clearly see the divergence, though, this year. The uh, UPS has has done pretty well. They had a really good peak season, one of their best peak seasons ever. And even though the first quarter was maybe a little disappointing, the second quarter looked really solid. So, I, And I think people are going to really focus on this third quarter to see if that momentum is still there in the right direction. Whereas FedEx, they, they've had a pretty tough time of it uh, throughout this year. It, was, it wasn't a very good year for their fiscal year, which ends in May. It didn't finish up very strong, and they came out of the gate very weak. And so what 
is is sort of the next step for for each of these? I mean, FedEx, uh, Jim, seems to have these, you know, sort of this drag from TNT. They have all the elements that that we've been talking about. How do they sort of get it back? Get get back the mojo. Yeah, sure. They are taking steps to combat the overall negative operating environment. They're they're lowering their capacity on the air fleet. They're selling planes and getting rid of planes. That's going to help save them costs. They fired Amazon as a customer, which is going to help their operating margins over time and also gets rid of the worries that people have that FedEx is going to lose Amazon's business when it was never a big part of their business to begin with. And they are looking to overall... Uh, double down on e-commerce in the U.S. and get their growth there going as well. I mean, bottom line, Tom, uh, and Jim, I'll get your thoughts too, but Tom, let me start with you. I mean, when it comes to moving stuff around, it really is uh, all about UPS and FedEx. I know that there are some smaller players too, but these are really, you know, these are our choices, correct? That's right. You can't you can't forget Amazon. They are True. building right. out their delivery network. It's been surprising uh, how much capital they have put into this, and that is it was thought that that was a barrier to entry. We'd have this duopoly always, but Amazon is building out uh, their network in a big way, and there is a possibility they'll start taking on third-party packages. Well, and so, Jim, you you agree? Is that what you're expecting, too, out of Amazon? Well, Amazon has invested billions of dollars in infrastructure and sorting and handling and warehousing. Um, they have not yet taken that big step in buying planes and trucks in a big way. I think that's a huge uh, a moat for FedEx and UPS that Amazon is going to continue to do the sorting and handling and allow these other guys to do the rest. And so on UPS specifically, Tom, I want to go back to this idea of big investments that, you know, Abney has put out there. And, and as you point out in your story, there was some skepticism about it. Uh, the, this is a business that is very CapEx heavy, I think. Again, keep me honest. It's very, uh, you know, dependent on an infrastructure that you have to spend a lot of money on. Are investors okay with that, especially at a time where the world is generally sort of nervous about companies spending a lot of money? We saw their stock take a big hit when they first announced the price tag behind this plan in 2018. But I think twenty billion dollars—that's amazing. Over three years, right? Yeah. And that's—it's up from it's the incremental part of their capex. But they had underinvested for about—I mean, really, fifteen years. If you look at the investment as a percentage of sales, it was quite low for many years. David Abney told me that part of that was because the technology to retrofit some of their sorting hubs wasn't small enough or fast enough at the time. So they held off on that on purpose. And now they're building out um, those automated hubs, either greenfield, new hubs, or they're retrofitting their old hubs. So that's, that's where a lot of that money's being spent and, of course, to, to buy new aircraft. So, Jim, if investors, you know, who've been watching what's been going on with FedEx this week, looking at the names, listening to our conversation, you know, FedEx versus UPS, uh, you did lower your opinion on shares of FedEx this week to buy from Strong Buy, uh, and your rating on UPS, forgive me, I can't remember what it is. It, it is a Strong Buy. It's UPS, a Strong Buy as well. Right I mean, we do prefer UPS. You do prefer UPS. That's where you, you think investors should allocate new money. Well, I mean, over the longer term, both companies are going to be fine. The e-commerce demand is there. FedEx mentioned yesterday that they see package volumes doubling to $100 million per day over the next 10 years. Both companies are going to benefit from pushing that through their infrastructure networks. But right now, UPS is in the sweet spot, much more exposed to e-commerce. They do generate more cash from operations and pay a higher dividend yield. All right. 
Gentlemen, thank you so much. Tom Black, industrial logistics and aerospace reporter for Bloomberg. Great story out on the Bloomberg today. Catching up with the CEO of UPS. Well-timed, given everything we heard from their chief rival earlier in the week. And Jim Corridor is equity analyst over at CFRA Research. He joined us on the phone from New York City. And as we just heard, he's got a buy downgraded uh, on FedEx, largely based on what we heard this week, and a strong buy on UPS. Then news breaks, which happened to be the case with the magazine this week. The cover story on General Motors CEO Barry Mara, Mary Barra. Or Barry Mara. (laughs) Barry Barra. I don't know. Is it a full moon? Anyway, she's leading a transformation at the automaker, focusing on uh, EVs and self-driving vehicles. But first up, she's got to solve a strike by workers at the company. She does. And it just makes it all the more complicated. Let's get into it with the two writers of this story, this cover story. David Welch, Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from our Detroit Bureau. He's running it. And Brian Gruley is a writer for Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us on the phone from Chicago. So, David, I want to start with you. Uh, give us sort of the backdrop for GM right now and Mary Barra's task. Sure. First of all, I think Barry Morrow was a lounge. <laughs> for Tom Jones. It could stick. Uh, <laughs> Barry Morrow. Oh, um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so the backdrop here is, and it goes back a couple of years, General Motors started, uh, as you guys know, they, they sold their European operations. They, they left India, they left Russia, left Southeast Asian markets, and then in November they started cutting back the core business at home in the U.S. by closing, or at least let's call it marking for death, five plants in the U.S. and Canada, and 14,000 workers, mostly salaried. So they're cutting back on that core business, which does make them a lot of money. Uh, in order to invest in self-driving car technology and electric vehicles, which lose a lot of money right now, and, and the payoff is not really clear. So that, that's the big gamble. Uh, do, you, do you downsize the core business too much and miss out on, on uh, the money-making that is to be had there in order to, uh, to bet on this future? And hey, when you, when you bring change to an organization, you, you've got 8,000 angry white-collar workers who've been dispatched along with a lot of their friends, and you've got a union who wonders why you're closing all these plants and, and laying off workers uh, when you just made record profits for four years. Right. Brian Gruley, come on in, too. Uh, you know, I wonder if, if those workers, those striking workers, kind of have a point here in that, you know, hey, General Motors, we stayed with you through the tough times, and now that you're making money, uh, why don't we get to see a little bit more in terms of higher wages? Well, they have a point. Um, generally, with, with few exceptions, in the history of auto, uh, you know, negotiations, the union guys over the last thirty or forty years they keep having to give things up because, in particular, you know, the domestic automakers have been giving up, generally speaking, um, over this time market share and profits. Um, but GMs have done very well over the last few years, and GM was in a lot of trouble ten years ago, and the UAW paid up pretty pretty uh, steeply to help the company stand business in the wake of their bankruptcy. So they have a good point, but at the same time, with the backdrop that David uh, just laid out, you know, uh, part of Barra's, uh, the CEO's uh, reason for this transformation was she thought they were uh, spending a lot of money, losing a lot of money, making cars that weren't making money, uh, both overseas and in plants here that were underused. And for her to pursue what she thinks they ought to be pursuing, 
he's got to give some of that up. Mm. And that means the UAW faces you know, right. giving some of that up. Well, and all of this is happening, David, at a time where Mary Barra is trying to really set a new strategic direction. And I would highly recommend the uh, the chat that we had with you for our weekend show, which will be out later this week, because Carol very rightly brought up the timing aspect of this. No one really disputes that there is something fundamentally happening in the car industry, especially as we move to EVs. But it's largely a matter of timing. Tell us about that and, and sort of the risk there for Mary Barra. That's absolutely correct. So right now, nobody really sells electric vehicles in big numbers except Tesla. And as we know, Tesla makes money the odd quarter here and there. But by and large, they lose money and they're always going back to Wall Street for more of it. So that that is a dicey proposal, even if GM comes up with 20 electric vehicles that sell in big numbers. Can they make money? GM says they can, but it's still uncharted territory because they lose a lot of money. And the development costs to get there are pretty big. Autonomous vehicles might be even more dicey. They're spending less money on that than they will to develop electric cars. But uh, Waymo, which is Alphabet Inc., uh, you know, Google's self-driving car unit, they've delayed plans to launch these services with the public. GM has delayed those plans. The popular imagination is way ahead of reality when it comes to self-driving cars. Yeah, and so we, we just don't, you know, there's a, there are billions of dollars being spent by GM and many others, although GM's been probably the most aggressive. Uh, and we just don't know when the payoff is. So right. to put it in big numbers, GM spent $1.5 billion to acquire Cruise Automation, which is now GM Cruise. Right. And they spend a billion dollars a year funding it. They've hedged that because they've gotten investment dollars from SoftBank and from Honda and from T. Rowe Price, about six and a quarter billion, a little less, to defray their own costs. But a billion dollars a year, that's a whole new vehicle right. program. That's no joke to say yeah. the least. All right, David Wells, Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg. He joined us from that bureau. And Brian Gruley is a writer for Bloomberg Business Week. He joined us on the phone from Chicago. They've got the cover story this week online and on the Bloomberg Terminal today. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close for the Thursday trade. Ryan Dietrich is senior market strategist at LPL Financial, certainly well known to our Bloomberg audience. $706 billion in assets under management. Joining us once again on the phone from Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. Ryan, good to have you back. Uh, here on Bloomberg, I want to mention just quickly, though, a headline. First Quantum said to draw some takeover interest. So uh, the deal flow or potential deal activity continues to happen here in 2019. Ryan, uh, big week, energy, uh, Saudi Arabia, overnight markets, the Fed decision. Uh, I don't know. When you look at it technically, how does it sum up? 
Hey, Carol. First off, thanks for having me back. And also, I just want to mention, today is my son Gus's seventh birthday. So hey! He'll love hearing me just say that and you guys say that. That was great. Happy Thank birthday, Gus. That's yes. a big yeah, seven. Talk, That's like, talk like a pirate day. How good is that for <laughs> Talk like a pirate day is a birthday. Is he a, is yeah, he a, does he like to talk like a pirate? That's the important he, question. He likes to talk like, he think, I think he, yes, he likes to talk like a pirate. He thinks he's a pirate sometimes. He's a, he's a good little seven-year-old. I'll leave it at that. So. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. So, so you know, you guys, let's let's that's enough about Gus. Let's get to the markets. You know, you're right, Carol. All these big news this week: the Fed, oil, Saudi Arabia. I was just looking at it, guys. The last ten days, potentially, if today doesn't close up ten basis points, either up or down, we're flirting with the Dow. This could be the sixth day out of the past ten that the S and P didn't move ten basis points. In other words, relatively flat. We got all these scary headlines and news and, and things we're talking about. Yet the market in the scary month of September is really, I think, taking things in stride. And you mentioned the technicals. Hey, we're kind of just consolidating here the last couple weeks, and we're right of chip shot from all-time highs. So overall, we really think at LPL Research, this is positive. You know, I know all the scary headlines that are out there, but boy, oh boy, from a technical point of view and fundamentals we can get into, Things still look to uh, to us that the upside is probably the way this thing's going to go. Well, it is a little bit nuts to think about the idea that we came into this week with some major concerns about what was going on in crude oil mm-hmm. and the geopolitical tensions that are derivative of that both – ahead of that and derivative from that and here we are on thursday markets down you know over the five days it's down you know four tenths of one percent in in terms of the dow two tenths of one percent for the s p but as you say not that volatile and essentially flat that's got to be surprising yeah and i think it's interesting too if i can just jump in that we were talking like the potential for a black swan moment right (laughs) coming off of what happened in saudi arabia and yet here we are so I don't know, Ryan. Uh, you know, technical indicators, they don't necessarily always tell us what's to come. But when you look at it and do the deep dive, what do you see? Well, you're right, guys. You know what Mark Twain said, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And what we see here, you know, one of our favorite technical indicators is this simply the advanced decline line on the NYSE. That's how many stocks are going up versus down. What you got to know, that made a new all-time high last week. So there's a lot of stocks participating. You know, look what small caps did just last week. Obviously, the value trade finally came back to us. Some of those more cyclical names, like financial specifically, all of a sudden look like they're ready to take the baton and start to lead. And that's how bull markets work. You pass the baton around. If you drop the baton, you're in trouble. It doesn't seem like that's the case. And, you know, you talk about black swans. Let's talk about the repo markets for a second. Clearly, what's going on there, I'm not a repo expert, but what I can say is this. What's going on there is many people looking. I remember 2007 when money markets broke a buck. That was kind of that worrisome sign that something bigger under the surface was happening. Well, we look at, you know, credit spreads here at LPL Research, specifically, you know, triple B spreads and high yield spreads. Even it's real simple. The credit markets are very calm right now. In fact, they've calmed the last couple of days with all this repo stuff starting. So I think spreads would blow out well ahead of a historical recession like we usually see. They're not right now. So that's still one positive thing we think that the credit markets, they're the smartest guys in the room, which I tend to agree with. They're not worried about a recession here, and they're almost ignoring the repo market news that everyone's talking about. And so what do you make with – so synthesize all of this with us, the black swan that turned out to be, you know – 
not or swimming along a, a little bit, yeah. not scaring us as <laughs> right. much as maybe we thought. Uh, what you just said about the repo market and some of the worries that that introduced that may have uh, may ultimately have, have calmed down a little bit. And then what we heard from Jay Powell yesterday, uh, put that all together for us. And what's the picture for the rest of September and, and maybe the balance of the year, Ryan? Yeah, well, Jason, first off, you know, historically the second half of September of the last 20 years has been a little bit of a weakish seasonality time frame. So just be aware of that. But big picture, you know, we took a look. When the Fed cuts rates, if they cut rates at the start of a cycle 50 basis points, like they did in 2001 and 2008, yeah, we went back and read the transcripts. The Fed didn't say they saw a recession coming. We all know those were leading into recessions. What they did was a 50 basis point cut. They've only done 25 basis points two times. We went back 1979, 1984, 87, 95, and 98. Those five cycles all started with two 25 basis point cuts. The return six months later up 10%, a year later up almost 17%. So there's the old saying, don't fight the Fed. And the Fed, yeah, they're, they're saying what they're going to say, but what are they doing? Quarter basis point cuts are usually a pretty good thing for the market, and we, we have to listen to that. And when we just talked about consolidating your all-time highs, market's telling us it might want to go higher well, and don't fight the Fed. As we know, Fed action, though, is not ex- – uh, you know, or Fed activity is not – Exact. So I guess right. the hope is that by doing these rate cuts, they kind of ward off any downturn in the economy, right? And kind of keep, even if it's, you know, slow momentum, they at least keep it going. But it, like I said, it's not an exact science. So, you know, whether or not they're too late or too early or what have you, I guess time will tell, right? We won't really necessarily know until we're kind of out of it. No, and that's true, Carol, but at the same time, what's the market telling us? Look at just the housing data yesterday, existing home sales and new home sales today, really strong. The U.S. consumers, the number one, I think, star of this global economy, and housing stocks are breaking out to multi-year highs. It's tough for us to see housing stocks leading, breaking out, uh, to say that there's a recession right around the corner. You know, But I mean, what about for manufacturing, sign. Ryan, where already we see those numbers, yep. you know, uh, depending on what metric you look at, right. uh, indicating recession? Well, yeah, I mean, there's no question manufacturing numbers a week. Right. We saw the ISM mm-hmm. manufacturing number break 50 last week. I mean, manufacturing is a concern globally. We get it. At the same time, manufacturing makes up about 11% of GDP in the U.S. It was about 40% during World War II. So we are more of a services-based economy. Now, it's not to say we're ignoring manufacturing here, but still, a 49.1 ISM number like we saw a week ago comes out to about 1.9% GDP. That's not necessarily recessionary, last I checked. That's kind of right what we're flirting with. Right. So, we're worried about it, but boy, oh boy, the U.S. consumer being in good shape, we think can keep this um, you know, record 10-year economic cycle still on its feet. All right. We're going to leave it there. Ryan Dietrich, Senior Market Strategist for LPL Financial, joining us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina, where I'm guessing in a few hours' time, he's going to be singing happy birthday to Gus. Aww. Happy seventh birthday yeah. to him. Hope you're going to celebrate. Uh, well, and the markets, they're not quite sure whether to celebrate or not today. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.